Good morning, guys. Or I think it's morning where you are. I like how I say where you are as if you're in a different time zone. But here I am in Waco, Texas. Uh, it happens to be Saturday night here. Don't let it throw you off. There's a lot of chaos going on in my home, so I decided to come to a nearby bank parking lot so that I could be appropriately socially distanced and outside. Uh, for ambiance purposes, I have placed myself by a dumpster, so you're welcome. Uh, can't wait for the time that I get to see you in person, but in the meantime, so grateful that I get to be a part of this community. You guys know that you have my heart, and especially during this particularly difficult season, you have my prayers and my thoughts are with you. So today we are starting a six-week series going through the book of Exodus. I love Exodus. This is the place where all the parts of Israel being established uh, as the people of God are coming together. So it's not just where we have the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt and brought through the soul-shaping time in the wilderness to the place where they understand themselves as God's people in the Promised Land. That's also the place of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and the Golden Calf and manna and all those days in the wilderness, right? The reason that this story matters is it's considered the shaping story for God's people. It's the time where they realize that they are God's people. When God says, you are mine and I give myself to you as well. The other thing about this book that makes it so important is that it's revisited through all the other biblical texts. Everything kind of comes back to this point where God says, I am your God who brought you out of slavery. It's the way then that God identifies himself to Israel. You know, not just saying, remember that I'm God, but specifically calling on an event that has happened in which God acted on behalf of the Israelites. So I'm not just your God, but I'm the God, remember, who brought you out of slavery in Egypt to bring you to myself. It's in Numbers, in Leviticus, and Judges, and 1 Samuel. There's this reference to the Israelite people that it's not just that I'm a random God who wants to flex their muscles, but I am the God who has acted before, and it's that same God who's calling you to trust right now. So it's my hope that as we go through this, that you'll also take some time to read Exodus, jot down any notes, things that stick out to you, maybe share with your friends or just your journal, or I would love to hear any thoughts that you have. I think it's such an important story because it is also the story in which we find ourselves. It's the continued and repeated story of a God who is locked in on redemption and goes after us, people who are enslaved, whether it's to things we're addicted to, compulsive behaviors, or even just wrong ideas about who we are. And this God who has decided that redemption and rescue is what he has for us is never, ever, ever going to stop, no matter what's going on with us, despite our own struggles to learn what it is to surrender and to learn what it is to be free. So because Exodus is where the people of God are established as the people of God, where God promises to be for these people everything they need, then it's also the place where they have to figure out what that looks like. You know, just because they've been called the people of God doesn't mean that they exactly know how to live as the people of God. And that's where we get this whole time in the wilderness 
They had to shake off all of these old ideas of being slaves in Egypt and learn how to be people who let God take care of them. Not an easy thing. So Israel, um, uh, basically we're talking about Jacob, who is renamed by God Israel, and he is the father of 12 sons, who are also known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And initially they were a small kind of nomadic group moving around. They didn't have any of their own land. So by the grace of God, they were allowed to live at these different places until they had a place to call their own. So when Jacob was living in the land of Canaan, there was an annihilating, just devastating famine that happened. And one of the brothers, Joseph, was sold into slavery by his other 11 brothers. And this, even though they intended it for evil, ended up leading to Joseph being the governor of Egypt and Pharaoh's right-hand guy, ultimately was the way through which Jacob and his family were preserved. So even in the midst of a devastating famine, Israel was preserved. And so Israel, this nation of 70 people, was starting to grow slowly and surely. They lived peacefully in Egypt. They had favor with Pharaoh and were allowed to grow and have their own space of land. However, they apparently multiplied like rabbits. And then there was a new Pharaoh in power who had no loyalties to Jacob and no loyalties to Joseph. And all of a sudden, these foreigners were not welcome anymore. So what tends to happen whenever we are afraid and whenever we become threatened is we try to oppress the people we are threatened by. So in Exodus 1, Pharaoh is threatened and basically says that the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And the text says that because they are too many and too mighty, let us deal harshly with them so that they won't continue to grow in strength and numbers. Because if war breaks out, they might join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. So in an effort to control the once welcomed Hebrews, Pharaoh forced God's people into slavery and demanded that they build up his empire by making bricks. So here are these people who have been welcomed and a part of and called by God and set apart from the other people of the world. And now these taskmasters in Egypt are making them into slaves and giving them these harsh, extremely heavy burdens. So Exodus 1 says that they built for Pharaoh store cities. But the more that they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied, and the more that they spread abroad the land, to the point where the Egyptians were in dread of these people. So they continued the oppression and ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives extremely bitter with harsh service, mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. And in everything they made them do, they were ruthless and enslaved them. So here's a people who all of a sudden, once being welcomed, are now experiencing the wrath of a new king who is threatened by them, almost in a completely false, no basis for this kind of way. I mean, think about it. Pharaoh was threatened by a group of people without any reason to believe that at some point they would rise up against him. So he kind of creates a false narrative of what they maybe could possibly think about doing, and out of that tries to destroy Israel through slavery and oppression. 
this is a guy who was addicted to his own sense of power, his own sense of control. And just a side note, that is absolutely what happens when we're driven by fear and insecurity is that we do whatever it takes to maintain some kind of image of control. So that's what Pharaoh is doing and then invites and leads Egypt into this false narrative, enslaves and oppresses this group of people, inviting the entire nation to be against the Hebrews who once lived safely and peacefully with them. So the more that he tries to control, however, the more that he tries to hold them down, the more they multiplied. They just kept going. And that's why the Egyptians begin to resent and hate and fear these people. It wasn't enough for them to be enslaved, so Pharaoh takes it a step further and commands that every Hebrew boy that is born be killed. When the midwives don't do what Pharaoh has said, he then sends the decree to all of Egypt, no Hebrew baby boys should be allowed to live. I cannot even imagine a scenario in which I'm in a foreign place and receive the message that I'm not welcome and all of a sudden I'm a threat and the very existence of me draws hatred from people who feel like I don't belong. And the leader of this country is forcing me and my people to build up his empire, is stealing my freedom, ruthlessly oppressing me, and then murders my children. The fear, the anger, the despair, the grief that God's people must have experienced. I couldn't imagine anything more overwhelming, anything that would lead to more hopelessness. And there seemed to be no break in their suffering, right? I mean, Exodus chapter one outlines how harsh and intensifyingly harsh the slavery. Even when the current Pharaoh died, the Hebrews were absolutely drowning in despair. And it was in this place that the text is something interesting. In chapter two of Exodus, it says that the people cried out under their harsh slavery. They cried out and God heard their cries. That is what we do when we're in that place of complete despair, that they no longer were able to withstand the tyrannical demands of Pharaoh. They couldn't handle the gut-wrenching loss. And they remembered this God of their fathers from whom all appearances seemed to have basically abandoned them. And yet there was this guttural cry, this human visceral reaction that we can connect with as well. They cried out. And this cry out was not a song of worship. It wasn't a choral hymn. It was not a prepared prayer. There was no harmony in their voices. There was no eloquence. They cried out because something in them was dying because they had a grief so huge that it had to be heard. It was an instinctual guttural noise. Their grief, the searing pain in them leapt out of the mouths, whether they wanted it to or not. They cried out because that's exactly what we do when we're in despair. We cry out when we're in our most human places, when we're in the darkness, in the middle of that gravity of pain, in the depth of fear, in the height of our anxiety, we cry out. That's what we were made to do. We can't hold the burdens 
that we were never meant to hold anyway. We are one breath away from collapsing. And in that one breath, we cry out. I've been thinking about my own crying out, my own using that breath to cry out. And I, I think they cried out not because they had some idea that if they did so, things would change. I think they cried out because that's all they could do. That somewhere, even embedded in their DNA, there's this understanding that there's got to be something for us that maybe we know way down instinctively that there is a God of compassion who is for us. Or maybe it's because it's all that they knew to do. Maybe there is a God who sustains. There is something beyond what I'm experiencing right now, that there is a God who not only loves, but is also the author of love and has exactly what we need in order to get through those places where all we can do is cry out. Some part of us knows that we do not have on our own what we need in order for survival and thriving. And we cry out the exhausted, raw, surrendered soul instinctively calls out to the Creator, even if sometimes we're not sure to whom we're crying. These cries are a part of what makes us human, despite our surface attempts to think we have it all together. And their cry for rescue from slavery was heard by the God who created. God heard their cries. The text says that God heard and God paid attention and God understood. This is what happens when God hears. This is what happens when the God of the universe and a God who has called people and a God who pursues in love sees Israel and knows their suffering. Because he didn't just pay attention to the concept of suffering. He didn't just pay attention to the concept of slavery. It wasn't that he just was against injustice. This God saw people who were suffering, not just concepts of suffering. He saw individuals who had lost everything, individuals who were so stressed that they couldn't sleep or eat, people who were so scared and had no idea what to do next. And Exodus says that God heard and God understood. And whenever God sees, God acts. So God hearing means then that God comes down. So maybe for you, as you are listening to this, as you are watching, you are in a place that you're holding things that you're afraid will break you. There are burdens that you were never meant to carry and you find your arms full of them. Maybe you also have one breath left before you collapse. I don't know if it's harsh treatment or abusive relationships or unyielding sin patterns or criticism or feelings of failure or your own bitterness and unforgiveness or financial difficulties, relationship issues, loneliness, whatever it is, are you in the kind of place where you can't imagine tomorrow being different than today? Because in that place of hopelessness, what I've learned is we cry out. We cry out just like Israel did in the unimaginable place of suffering. 
that the nation of Israel never expected to be. Our cries for rescue open us up to a God who actively pursues us. When we cry out, we're more aware of a God who might respond back. It's not about us having to heal or fix ourselves or um, rescue ourselves. Our job then is to just do what we do, which is to cry out, to invite the divine to come into this place of weakness and need and meet us where we are. We don't know how to make it better. We don't know how to heal ourselves or fix the situation. All we know how to do is cry out and invite healing from the one who knows and sees and comes down. And yet somehow, even in the midst of this story, you may know the ending of what happens to the Israelites. You may know that the Hebrew people are miraculously brought out of Egypt and out of slavery. This is a total spoiler alert, by the way. You may already know that they walk across the dry land in the middle of a sea and are taken to the promised land. But in the moment where the Hebrews are dying under the weight of oppression and slavery, in the moment where a woman just saw her son murdered after he was born, they're not thinking about the end of the story. They're thinking in that moment about the deep pain and loss that they are currently experiencing. So it's easy for us to tell one another in a deep place of suffering that it's not always going to be like this. That yes, it's hard now, however, we're going to grow stronger for it. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you, no, that's total bull. When you are in the midst of that kind of hopelessness and despair, you're not thinking about how the story might end differently. You're in a place of pain. And God meets with us in the place of pain. It's not as if God says, I'm going to meet with you when you get your attitude together and when you're ready to imagine something different. It's in that place where we most need the comfort of God that God sends comfort. There's always, I've noticed, even in the bleakest of circumstances, some kind of nightlight in the corner. And not, it may not be a light one. It may not be the... Uh, dawn coming in through a window. Maybe it's a little bit of light. And the way that God's rescuing work begins in the book of Exodus is not with some super, you know, ripped Israelite guy coming in and just slaughtering Egyptians. That's not how it works. But in the midst of this very bleak situation for the Hebrews, a baby is born. It seems to be a theme with God, I've noticed. But a baby is born. And this baby, Moses, is protected by his mom for a few months until she can't anymore. And then she puts him into a basket and sets him on a little stream. The basket gets caught in some reeds. The baby starts crying. And all of a sudden, baby Moses is rescued by none other than the daughter of Pharaoh, who has compassion for this little Hebrew baby. And after allowing Moses' own mom to nurse him, she takes Moses into the palace and raises her as his own. The seeds of God's rescuing work have started. They started when God heard, understood, acknowledged, and acted on the cries of his people. It may not have been in a way that they understood, but the wheels were turning. There was a response in the heart of God that is responsive to the pain of people. Not a God who stands off at a distance, and just demands obedience and tells us to suck it up, 
but a God who responds to pain, a God who sees the hurt and the heaviness and recognizes the feelings that come from our loneliness and our anxiety and our stress, a God who understands that the unpredictable nature of the world or even 2020 might be too much for us and that God sees and hears and that God acts. So Moses' birth is not necessarily the blast of light, but it's that nightlight in the corner. It's a slat of light in the midst of a great darkness because even Moses, that's a little tiny baby, his whole early days defy the oppressive and murderous command of the king of Egypt. His very life stands against this tyranny and seems to say in some kind of way that no matter what you decree and no matter how you try to destroy us, life somehow keeps going. Even when the oppression was increasing, the Israelites were multiplying. Even when murder is the state of children who are being born, somehow life keeps going. A baby is born and this baby evades death by floating down the river in a basket where he's rescued by a princess and restored to his nursing mom until he finds his place in the palace of Pharaoh. The rescuing work of God has already begun. And the amazing part is that the rescuing work of God begins before we even cry out. God is the God of rescue not because that's what God does, but because that's who God is. It doesn't matter if we cry out and there's no one to hear. That's what hopelessness is. But our outcry, no matter what we're carrying right now, our outcry is not ignored. And our hope rests in the willingness of God to hear our cries, to heal and to rescue and to restore. So knowing that wherever we are now, we are not in a place where we are unseen. We might want more than that. It might not help us today to hear in our place of despair, you're seen and you're heard. Because then the question becomes, then why is no one stepping in right now? And the truth is, I don't know. I don't know what the timeline is for our healing and what the timeline is for our rescue. And I know that there are times where we feel like we can't stand one more second and yet the rescue doesn't seem to come. What I do know is that my experience with God and what the scripture tell us and what we see in people of faith all over the world and through history is that somehow, even in the darkest moments, it's never ever over somehow we are able to be sustained in places we didn't think we could. Somehow there is a God who so relentlessly chases us and holds us that we don't even know we're being held. A God who is for us far more than we could be for ourselves. So what does that mean for our place of pain and our place of hopelessness right now? That somehow it's not over. That we cry out and then we believe somehow with any kind of faith that we have that rescue will come that there is a god who hears who understands and who acts the incredible thing about a god who is willing to act on your behalf is not simply that god is a god of action in a distant way but god's action means that god comes near 
that God is near to us in the places we least want to be, in the places we least expect, whether or not we see and whether or not we want God to be present. That God is with you now. The rescuing work has already begun. Whatever it is that you're holding, whatever your place of suffering, God sees, God understands, and God will continue to come near. Grace and peace to you this week.